Welcome to Drilling Deep, the Freightways Freightcast podcast, where we talk about pretty much anything and everything. We do take a special interest in what's going on in the market for oil, the fuel that makes the trucking and transport sector go. We're also going to be spending some time today with Amit Mahotra, the well-respected chief transportation analyst at Deutsche Bank. Amit's going to give us his views on the state of the trucking sector as we head into 2020 and whether there are any grounds for thinking that a recovery is around the corner and why. But first, I want to talk about independence. Everybody wants to be independent, right? Except maybe that 29-year-old kid who's still living in the bedroom that he or she grew up in and mommy's still making that bed. I'm old enough to remember that first oil crisis back in the 70s when you heard the same thing over and over again. The U.S. needed to become energy independent. The problem is nobody ever really defined what that meant. Did it mean all energy like coal and natural gas? Well, the U.S. is a huge net exporter of coal and now for the past two years, roughly a big net exporter of natural gas. Does energy independence just mean crude oil? Did it mean that the U.S. wouldn't import anything oil related from anywhere? What the heck does energy independence mean? So last week, President Trump declared that the U.S. didn't need Mideast oil because it was, quote unquote, energy independent. So now I think is as good a time as any to discuss that question, is the U.S. energy independent? What probably spurred him to say that is that the last two monthly reports of U.S. energy statistics coming from the Energy Information Administration show that if you count up every single barrel of petroleum that the U.S. exported against the amount of petroleum it imported, we exported more than we imported. That's two months in a row. There's a two-month lag on the data. So the latest report is through October. But in September, just by a small amount, but um, in October, it was more than 300,000 barrels a day in October. That's the latest monthly figure for which they're available. You want to know how big a change that is? In August 2005, which let's face it, wasn't that long ago, a little less than 15 years, the U.S. net import dependence was over 13 million barrels a day and now that number is negative. It really is incredible. And of course, it's happened because of the shale revolution. And voila, some people can now proclaim energy independence. But it's obviously not that simple. So let me lay out a few things about what's behind those numbers. I promise I won't pile the data on. That just leaves a lot of people lost. But here's what you should know about the U.S.'s import-export position. First, the U.S. does not produce anywhere near what it consumes. We produce about 18 million barrels a day of crude biofuels in a very big category called natural gas liquids, which include th- includes things like propane. We consume about 20 million barrels a day. Right there, there's a mismatch. We refine about 17 and a half to 18 million barrels a day. Again, a mismatch of what we produce and what we refine. A lot of what we export that goes uh, into that number of being a net exporter are products that are important. And they all count in the data, but, you know, they aren't what the average person thinks about when they think about oil. For example, we now export a huge amount of propane as a result of the shale revolution. We're getting massive amounts of propane out of the ground. We export a huge amount of a product called petroleum coke. We aren't filling our truck tanks up with petroleum coke, except in rare circumstances, we aren't powering our cars on propane. So these really aren't the kind of numbers that people think about when they worry about energy independence and the ability to make sure they have enough in their tank to get to work. So why export crude if we're importing it also? So let's take a look at the map of the U.S. So we export as much as sometimes 3 million barrels a day but we're still importing anywhere between 6 and 7 million barrels a day. So think about the map of the U.S. Think it in your head. It's a big country. 
The oil is not always near where it's refined and consumed. So it's a lot more economically efficient in a lot of cases to import it from somewhere else and export it from a different location. And you can't easily move it from one place to another because of the Jones Act. That's a whole uh, the subject of a whole different show if you don't know what the Jones Act is. But the bottom line is you're not going to take a lot of oil out of Texas and ship it to California. You're not going to take a lot of oil out of Texas and ship it up to New Jersey or the Philadelphia area. There are no pipelines for crude. Rail can be expensive, though it is used. It just doesn't make any sense. So what do you do? You import it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's another issue. The new crude that is coming out of the shale play is very light. The U.S. refining system, which, by the way, is incredibly developed and one of the best in the world, is set up to run heavy crude. Why? Because years ago, nobody saw the shale revolution coming. And so the U.S. refining industry got itself ready to process lots of heavy crude from places like Venezuela, Mexico and Canada's oil sands. So rather than retrofit all these refineries at a cost of billions, why not just keep processing the heavy stuff? A lot of it's imported and export the light stuff to places that are set up to run it. And that's what's been happening. So this really all boils down to making sure we don't do anything really stupid here. It's important that policymakers understand that though the U.S. is a net exporter, it still imports lots of petroleum from elsewhere. It's going to keep importing lots of petroleum from elsewhere. And that's fine. The net export position means that the U.S. is making more money selling oil and biofuels abroad than it is spending to import it. And that's great. It also significantly strengthens the U.S. hand in international politics. But there's nothing wrong with the fact that there are still plenty of imports in that total number. Maybe you don't think that constitutes energy independence. Maybe it does. Again, we could argue forever about what it means. But let's just make sure that we don't start messing around with the free market and petroleum products, which has largely kept the real price of petroleum falling for about six years, if you take the short-term view, 12 years if you take the medium-term view, and 40 years if you take the long-term view. Argue all you want about what energy independence is. Just do not mess with the market. It's allowed us to be in a lot better position than that 1973 situation that I mentioned. We're going to take a quick turn in direction now, as we always do on Drilling Deep, and we're going to bring in a good friend of Freight Waves, Amit Mahotra. Amit is the lead transportation analyst at Deutsche Bank. Amit, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. All right. So let's look at the last four to six weeks. It's been pretty crazy in trucking. Of course, we had the Celadon closure. We had other companies go out of business. You wonder if there were companies out there that were hanging on for maybe a, a late Christmas surge that really never did come. And uh, so they decided to, to throw in the towel. So presumably everybody out there sees a tightening of capacity. There's been just too many closures not to be some kind of tightening of capacity, certainly led by Selenon, which was enormous. So a lot of analysts are talking about a turnaround by the third quarter based in part on a tightening of that capacity. Do you see that happening? Well, I mean, let's be clear. You know, there's uh, kind of close to two million Class A trucks on the road um, um, today and here in the U.S. So it's going to take a lot of um, a lot of closures, way more than we've seen so far, to really drive any supply response. Um, I think what we've seen so far with respect to Celadon, as you mentioned, and other small carriers, they represent just a tiny fraction of overall supply. So we actually don't think um, or, or really, really never thought beyond maybe a day or two of some 
you know, chaotic kind of um, uh, surging capacity needs by certain shippers, that there was really going to be any sustainable or fundamental tightening in the market. Um, And the bottom line is, is that the market is so darn fragmented, you know, where the vast majority of supply is in the hands of, um, you know, companies that have fewer than five or six trucks that even though the number of carriers going out of business can be high, um, unfortunately, that translates to a relatively small percentage of supply. Um, we think the the bigger bigger thing is, is that the reason we're getting and maybe other people are getting more positive on a back half 2020 tightening is the fact of the matter is that, is that there was a 60%, 60% reduction in new orders for new trucks uh, in 2019. And, and that will manifest itself in the supply-demand dynamic in late 20. Of course, the, the, the positive implication there is that demand holds steady, and that is a critical assumption that we're making that looks pretty good now with the jobs report being what it is. Uh, but nonetheless, that is still a question mark. Um, but that's really what underpins our bullishness in the back half of 2020. Yeah, on the new truck orders back in 2018 when they were at those enormous levels, you know, companies that, that come out with that data like FTR, Act Research, they would say, well, what we're hearing is that this is not necessarily new capacity. They're just trying to retain drivers. Drivers want the, the best, most modern truck. And so we don't see this as necessarily adding to a surge in capacity. Well, that turned out to be baloney because it actually did add, add capacity. So now you're saying you see the inverse with that drop in orders you think is, is clearly going to result in less capacity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, I would say that, um, you know, the comments about growth versus replacement capacity and new orders um, is somewhat true on the large carrier side. So when you look at companies like Werner and Knight, you know, clearly two Knight Swift, two of the largest truckload carriers in the country, you know, they were not really growing their fleets. And so, um, you know, and, and those are the two companies that did order some, uh, you know, increased amount of orders back in 2014 at the last upcycle. So I, I think the problem is, is that, you know, uh, there is a capacity creep in very fragmented markets. Uh, when you think about owner operators and leasing companies and, you know, all these, um, you know, people forget, but Ryder back in 2018 had a record new lease year, right? And so at the end of the day, there is capacity creep that occurs no matter what um, in, in certain segments of the, of the, of the market where, you know, that are not necessarily as transparent. And, and unfortunately, that's just a reality of a fragmented market like trucking. You know, the, we, we, you talked about the, the big boys that have gone out selling on and some other names out there. What you don't really see are the, <clears throat> you know, hear the news about the five and 10 fleet companies that also close. And one of the reasons they are said to be closing is that insurance costs have just gone absolutely through the roof. Have you been monitoring that? Do you have any kind of metrics on, on how much that has gone up and how much of an impact that is having on capacity? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, um, uh, clearly, it does not get talked about as much, especially from my side. Where, you know, my job, I talk to um, large institutional investors that invest in the trucking and transportation logistics space. And this is not a topic that gets brought up by them because I don't think it's really on their radars, even though it should be. Um, you know, one example is one of the, one large truckload company told me a couple weeks ago that uh, they were trying to increase their insurance coverage up to $250 million, they couldn't even get it to that level. They they struggled to get it all the way up to 140, 150 million. And, and, and that translated to a 25 to 30% increase on a year over year basis, 2020 versus 2019 in their insurance costs. Uh, and, and, and um, you know, with, with all these nuclear verdicts that have occurred, 
Insurance costs are going up significantly. And this is an underappreciated, under the radar aspect of what is likely to, to, to increase pressure on the small carriers, in addition to things like, you know, the central central drug and alcohol database, which went live on January 6th as well. Yeah, that, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. That was next question. A lot of debate out there about how big of an impact that clearinghouse is going to have. Where do you fall on that side of the question? Well, you know, um, uh, when when it went live on January 6th, there were reports that there were some glitches and technical problems. Of course, there was a teething problems. But um, I don't know what type of, you know, industry-wide implication that could have. But some anecdotes that I could share with you is truckload companies in the past have told me that when they have switched from urine to uh, hair follicle testing, as an example, up to 15% of their drivers, <coughs> excuse me, um, were, were, were impacted by that negatively. And so it does have a, it does have a, a significant impact. Um, uh, we, we'll wait and see, but I'm always a little bit hesitant to call a structural inflection in supply demand dynamics in, a, in such a fragmented market like trucking. At the end of the day, John, unfortunately, if the market gets very good, uh, capacity is going to find its way in the system. That's just a reality given the, the level of fragmentation in truckload. Right. And a company doesn't have to have a, 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 a no tolerance policy. Okay, so you did some hair testing. You found that the guy used marijuana. The marijuana is in, increasingly legal in a lot of the countries. It doesn't necessarily mean an end to their career right there. No, no, not at all. But um, you know, when it does, it does likely, given these new rules and regulations. <clears throat> excuse me. It does definitely um, drive some short term dislocation and disruption in capacity. I mean, at the end of the day, if you can't seat a truck. Uh, with drivers, I mean, it, just as an example, if you look at what you know when Knight acquired Swift, um, the, that Knight went through a very difficult period for about twelve months, where the number of um, uh, unseated uh, truck count was significantly higher, um, and we believe um, that that was directly the result of this transition away from. Uh, uh, urine to hair follicle testing that translated to a lot of Swift drivers leaving the network. Um, so so I, we, we think that the, there is some, of course, now Knight has completely uh, rectified that issue and truckload counts are actually flat to up. But nonetheless, um, it did drive some pretty short term significant dislocation disruption. Well, talking about Knight Swift, you're giving a nice transition here. We're going to be kicking off the first wave of earnings reports in just a few days. Knight Swift, right before Christmas, I believe, already lowered its guidance for the quarter. I haven't seen any others that I know of. So were you expecting that move from Knight Swift? And can we draw any broader conclusions from it about whether the fourth quarter was in line with analyst expectations in general or whether we're going to have some shortfalls? Well, listen, I mean, I think if anybody is uh, surprised that truckload fundamental results in the fourth quarter are going to be weak, if anybody is surprised, they were likely living on Mars for the last eight to nine months. Um, uh, the truckload market has been very, very weak, um, as everybody kind of already knows. Um, and so the night um, pre-announcement, by the way, the night pre-announcement with respect to fourth quarter results was quite a bit weaker than people expected. But it's notable that the stock actually traded up that day. Uh, it was December 20th, to be exact. And I know that because that's when my second daughter was born. And so I, I, remember, that, I remember that date. Um, but now, with that being said, this was night's third pre-announcement in a row. 
and the stock has done nothing but flat to go up. So I think in deeply cyclical industries, at least from my perspective, you know, from my perspective as an equity analyst at Deutsche Bank, what I do is uh, assess the, the perspective direction of stock prices. And in deeply cyclical industries um, that are short cycle like trucking, you actually want to buy stocks when um, when the fundamentals are getting bad or getting worse because of the short cycle nature of these businesses that typically foreshadows a sharp recovery. It's interesting you use the term deeply cyclical. I'm trying to sitting here trying to think what industries are more deeply cyclical, cyclical ugh, deeply cyclical than trucking. Can can you identify any? Yeah, probably maritime shipping. Um, well, okay, and, 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 we're so related. You know, the characteristic of deeply cyclical short cycle businesses, the two key characteristics: deeply fragmented and um, low financial barriers to entry. And so what I mean by that is, is that deeply fragmented, that's obvious. We know what that means. But low financial stand, uh, financial barriers to entry, meaning that um, <clears throat> anybody can kind of come in and add supply to the network. And so trucking is certainly like that with the leasing companies. You can, with relatively small amounts of money, add another truck to, to the road. And also with maritime shipping, that's similar. You don't need a lot of capital to add another ship to the water, albeit you need a little bit more than trucking. So I would say that um, maritime shipping, which is another com- industry that I follow very closely, plus trucking, uh, two of the most fragmented, lowest barriers to entry companies, uh, industries in the, in the world. And trucking now is getting, you could argue, you can make the argument that the barriers to entry are, 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 are increasing a little bit as a result of some of these difficulty of recruiting and retraining drivers as it relates to, um, you know, drug and alcohol database, hair follicle testing, all this stuff. It's just getting a little bit harder, but I'm still yet to be convinced that the barriers to entry are structurally changed in the industry. Right, and the cost of insurance too, as we noted before, Absolutely. you know, it, you know, be, before all the consolidation in airlines, you could. It was always amazing to me. I went to a an executive MBA course or executive training course, and one of the lessons was about barriers to entry and how easy it was to start an airline. And that you know, if you you leased a few planes, hired a few pilots, got a few slots, you could actually start an airline. That always sounded so bizarre to me. Right, but and, it's, and let's be clear, though, too, you know. The top five U.S. airlines control 80% of total capacity in the U.S., but yet the stocks traded under 10 times earnings. So what the market is telling you, and by the way, we haven't had a recession since the consolidation occurred. So what the market is telling you is, is, is there is a, a, the valuation of these companies implies a deep skepticism that even though these markets are consolidated, that there will be um, some pricing discipline. And I think we're waiting for the next recession to see that case. And I know this is a trucking call, so I don't want to focus too much on airlines. But the bottom line is, is that if we go through the next recession and the airline industry shows some pricing discipline as a result of this consolidation, then these these stocks should be much high, much better valued over time. All right. Well, let's let's go back a few weeks, even before the nice swift announcement and talk about FedEx's earnings. Uh, you describe them as breathtakingly bad. Well, so that, how do you see, that's exactly how, you see, how I felt. I mean, when I, yeah, I know, when, I, <laughs> when the results hit the tape, it took my breath away. And that's the only way I could have described it. <laughs> most, most Wall Street analysts are usually a little, you know, a little, a little kind of stable in their comments. So something like that was, I thought, very, very interesting. But anyway, how do you see the parcel wars playing out this year? And was FedEx's divorce from Amazon a good thing? Well, well certainly, I think, I think, um, you know, uh, I like to the way I think about it is no pain, no gain, right? And so um, I think that the Amazon divorce, so to speak, from FedEx 
will drive some near-term pain for FedEx. But if FedEx is, is successful in marketing that divorce and, and, and uh, attracting <laughs> other, other, other e-commerce players that maybe don't require as much volume discounts, then certainly it will be, it will be worth the pain over the long term. And so, you know, I, um, I've just been frustrated uh, by FedEx's, the management team's lack of, you know, acknowledgement that a lot of these issues that they're facing are company specific. But if you take that away for a second and just focus on the fundamentals, there is a credible case to be made that margins should take another, should take a step up from the low levels next quarter. When you think about Cyber Monday falling in the month of December, i.e. out of you know, their fiscal November quarter. So, so there is some, was a mismatch between expenses and revenue last quarter that should rectify because of that dynamic. And, um, you know, the Amazon thing will take time because unfortunately the capacity stays with FedEx and the structural costs associated with that capacity stays with FedEx, but the volumes go away very quickly. And so UPS is enjoying this honeymoon period with Amazon, but unfortunately a year, a year and a half from now, when Amazon fig, fix, you know, figures out you know, grows their network, their their footprint in a way that doesn't require air freight or lift capacity, then I think UPS may have the same issues. We don't have much time left, so I'm going to ask you the, the kind of one question that I guess all guests get asked in this time of the year. So what are the big one or two factors flying under the radar for trucking and transportation this year that maybe not enough people are talking about, but that you've identified as significant? Listen, I think the bottom line is, is that we need to see a fundamental recovery in freight flows. Um, you know, when we look at the CAS shipment index, which is the broadest measure of freight flows in the country, it's been down for 12 consecutive months. Um, so make no mistakes about it. We have a freight recession in the United States. And for freight companies um, to see better fundamentals and for the stocks to work, you need to see a rebound in volume. So we are somewhat optimistic. I know um, this podcast also focuses on the oil market. You know, rig counts have been down quite considerably. So the two things we're really watching that we think are under the radar to your question, one is we're watching rig counts. We are somewhat optimistic that rig counts will bottom out in April or May and actually exit 2020 up about 10% year over year. When we look at kind of what the current rig counts and, and imply for structural production for the U.S. oil and gas complex. So that's one area that I think we're, we're somewhat differentiated. The second point is we're getting very positive on the housing market in the U.S. We believe housing starts can be up five plus percent year over year in, in 2019 after being flat in 2018. And that just really reflects um, a reversal in affordability trends when you look at what the interest rates have done and what that implies for um, uh, uh, principal and interest payments on mortgages. So those two are big drivers of the industrial economy, of freight flows, and, and we don't think are being in, paid enough attention to by typical transportation observers. And, and we're somewhat optimistic about that. You know, when you look at the disconnect between demand for housing and the new supply of housing, it's it's so vast. You just wonder how long that can go on. But then, of course, you have politics playing in there, zoning, other kind of restrictions that doesn't do really do not allow a, a normal market adjustment to take place. Well, but people forget, you know, the average age of homes in this country is now 37 years old. It's up about 20 percent over the last decade. And, 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 you know, when you think about millennials, when we've done a ton of work looking at millennials and, and, and net worth of millennials relative to the generation prior and why they live at home longer, there are, 
very good reasons. When you think about millennials graduating college in 2008, 2009, a lot of them weren't able to get jobs, so they went to college. So you saw massive growth in college enrollment, you know, secondary graduate school enrollment. That drove up the price of college, and, and the associated student debt was much higher. So millennials just got a later start in life relative to prior generations. That's now working its way through the system. We're now 10 years uh, on from that. And so at some point, the flip will switch. Uh, the switch will flip, excuse me. And that will drive a surge. In, and, and of course, you saw a couple of weeks ago, sentiment among home builders is as high as it's been since 1997. So we're seeing positive steps in that direction. Uh, but that's one area of the freight economy that we don't think is as appreciated by transportation observers. All right. We want to thank Ahmed Mahocha for being our guest this week. And that's going to wrap up another edition of Drilling Deep, our look at oil and whatever else. We're part of the FreightWaves family of FreightCast. Join us again. I'm John Kingston. <laughs>